That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to mention that. I'm going to mention that, too. What's the, no. Yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to mention it and explain it a little bit. We're trying to get it off the ground, see how it's going. Well, good evening, everyone. Let's see, and your names are? <laughs> so, um, I, don't ask me. I'm not in charge of any of it. That's all I can say. So, um, but we're, we're hoping. That, be honest. How many of you have said, you know, I, we just need name tags. Some of you have had, told me. So I can get to know people better. So this is our, this is our feeble attempt at it. Um, I don't know about yours, but mine says, if found roaming the hall, return to Kelly. So um, uh, I don't know what yours says on it, but hopefully uh, he, knows my name. <laughs> he knows my name. There you go. Um, well, it's good to see everyone. I hope you've had a great day and uh, certainly wonderful service this morning. Uh, we were not here. Kelly and I were in Youngsville, North Carolina. Um, at Faith Baptist Church there this morning for a service and uh, some things there. Um, uh, it's a church my daughter her husband attend, and, and uh, we have some friends there too, so it was a good time to go visit with them. But we, we very much enjoyed listening to the service on the way back on the drive back this afternoon. So what a wonderful service and a great way to start a, uh, an exciting month for sure. Let me mention, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 in just a minute. Let me mention a few things from the Weekly Connect to remind you about. Of course, uh, I'm sure hoping everybody by now knows uh, Pastor Paul's retirement dinner coming up on the 25th, and a lot of folks I know have already started to register for that, and um, some, up, some other upcoming things are, are here also, uh, including a baptism next week, so that'll be something special to look forward to, and uh, Grief Share starts uh, here on the 25th also, all those plans still in place, and so that's coming up shortly. See Ron and Diane over here if you have questions. Maybe, you, maybe you've got somebody you think might be a good candidate for Grief Share. Most of you know what it, um, how it works and what it does, and so talk to them if, if uh, you have some questions. And then uh, on the back, too, there's a reminder to parents. We've got summer camp information out. We've got two weeks set aside in July for our teens and for our elementary-age students, upper elementary. And uh, so that detail should be in the lobby. I haven't looked at it today, so if it's not, uh, we'll get it there as quick as we can. But see me if you have questions about that. And uh, then Jerry was mentioning while she was going around with the clipboard, um, we're, we're inviting uh, our class, uh, we're tying this right now to, to this class, but it's not limited to our class, um, to a fellowship meal um, on Saturday the 17th at 5 o'clock. And this will be at Sapporo's Japanese Restaurant over on Battleground Avenue. Probably most of you know where that's at. And um, this is kind of intended to shoot for the folks who, uh, who are not in super seniors group. Um, just because they've got their fellowship and their world and their life and what wonderful things they do. And there's some things on here you can sign up for if that interests you too. Uh, but we're trying to sort of do some sort of class built around our class and built around the concept of the Bible study fellowships. So it's not limited to our class. We're certainly, you know, sending the invitation for those who would be interested. And uh, our long-term goal for this is really try to maybe make a once-a-month event. Uh, we'll kind of talk about it month-to-month -month as we meet and see what we want to do. So uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks and a great time for, you know, invite visitors if you'd like to or, uh, you know, there's no, no requirements, no restrictions. You don't have to be a member of the church. Certainly you don't have to be a member of the class. Uh, come as a couple, um, come as an individual. So uh, we'll just meet you there, and uh, we're asking folks to sign up. You know, they have this funny thing about wanting their reservations. And uh, so we're going to get those reservations confirmed. I've already talked to them, 
And uh, they're looking forward to hosting us and said as soon as we give them a number, they'll get us on the, on the uh, sheet. So I'm hoping to at least get a good response by next Sunday for sure. Uh, any questions about that, let me know. There's also, uh, maybe you saw uh, one of our missionaries informed us this week, uh, well, I'll say this week, probably the last couple of weeks of a need he has, and you can read about that here if that's something you might want to participate in and help with some expenses um, related to the ministry that uh, he's doing. That's Justin Bushy um, with Rock of Ages Ministries. So uh, anyway, there's some catch-up on some announcements from the uh, Weekly Connect, and Monthly Connect came out today also, so lots of things on there to be looking forward to. So um, exciting and busy time of year all at the same time. Welcome to February. Hope everybody had a great Groundhog's Day. How do you like your Groundhog with or without gravy? Is to, you know. Uh, so, of course, that was Friday. We have an extra day this month. I expect to be called up, don't you? One, one extra day. Um, so uh, we'll get to enjoy leap year this year, uh, this month also. So those things are ahead for us. And, of course, uh, this coming Wednesday, a couple of more traditional schedule stuff with us. This coming Wednesday will be the last video of the David Jeremiah series. And so I hope you'll plan to be here for that. That's been a tremendous series. And then on Thursday, we'll have Day 5 Fellowship. We'll be meeting and uh, if you're not a part of that or you have the time to come on Thursday, please come join us. We, uh, we, have, a, we have a group pretty, I wouldn't say totally as big as this, but not far from it, uh, that comes to uh, enjoy that every Thursday. So uh, come be a part of that this coming week if you're able to. Well, today we go into Hebrews chapter 4, the next chapter, and uh, we're going we're gonna to bounce into the Old Testament for a little while. I've got verses on the screen, so it makes it easy to, to look at quickly and sort of move on with what we need to, to see there. But if you just read, if you read chapter 3 and chapter 4, they really do go together in, in many ways. I'll make more of that point as we get into the text. But if you just this week read chapter 4 and had not read it before, you probably walked away scratching your head. Um, it's a chapter, and really chapter 3 and 4 are two chapters that, that have a lot of debate tied to them. I'm going to try to clear the water on some of that and maybe make it a little more uh, understandable for the way it's written and what it refers to. So to do that, we're going to start in the Old Testament and work our way through a couple of passages there. Because remember, Hebrews is a book written to Jewish Christians. And for that purpose, the writer makes many references to the Old Testament. We've already looked at several, right? Angels, Moses, Joshua, high priest is going to be mentioned in this one. We've already seen it once before, uh, the duties of the priest. And we'll look at it again next week. So have a little bit of Old Testament in our thought certainly helps, and I think this is a chapter that's especially true for that. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this and try to make our time profitable. Father, we're thankful indeed for the day you've blessed us with, a beautiful day, a wonderful day to be at church and to worship and uh, to see and remember, again, your blessings uh, that we all enjoy and share in and, like our pastor, have a testimony uh, that reflects your goodness to us. We're thankful for that. And uh, we do pray this will be a great month as we celebrate our pastor and uh, the years and commitment uh, he's, um, uh, of his life and ministry to us as individuals and to our church as a body. I pray that you'll make it indeed a great month. Uh, we pray that you'll bless our time this evening as we look at this chapter in our study. I pray that you'll bless the other Bible study groups as they're gathered uh, from the youngest to the oldest. May your word indeed uh, not return void and may it find a place in each heart um, to uh, do its work in helping to mold us and make us in the image of Christ our Savior, that he would want us to be as we serve him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, a key passage, again, we'll jump to this first every, every week, from, uh, which we'll get to obviously later, chapter 10 in Hebrews. Let us hold fast, uh, holding fast is to hold tightly uh, our profession of faith without wavering, 
you know, back and forth. Life has its ups and downs. Our faith should always be a, hopefully a stable part of that. Without wavering, for he is faithful, that promised. And then we're going to see that reference even here in our passage tonight um, about the faithfulness of God. And let us consider one another, let us encourage one another to provoke unto love and to good works, to help each other in this process of life. You know, we're all in this together. And doing this together means that we're here to help each other and to encourage one another as we go through uh, life's challenges. And then lastly, the, uh, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Being at church is important. Uh, for the Christian, for the Bible believer who wants to learn more of God's Word and how it impacts our lives, being at church is important. It's pretty difficult to be a solo Christian in any generation, in any culture. Um, and, you know, that, the, the concept of a hermit, right? You know the concept of a hermit? Hermit began because some people thought being a Christian meant going to live by yourself in a cave somewhere. Just shut the world out. Well, that, that really is not the best way at all. Uh, we're encouraged to bond together into a fellowship. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the, the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, again, encouraging, lifting up, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching, and the day there being the, the day of the Lord, a phrase from the Old Testament that's used to reference the, the end times. And certainly we look around us and see many things that impact that. Hebrews has a, has a place in New Testament studies that often generates more controversy, confusion, and debate than many other books do. Um, and you'll find good, good biblical scholars who find themselves taking different positions on different passages. Um, so don't be surprised if you were to read or hear a good Bible teacher who maybe take a different twist or turn to this. Uh, I'm going to try to stay sort of mainstream and not venture off into too many rabbit trails of this for the purpose of getting the big picture. Because as we do these studies week by week, chapter by chapter, my goal is to get the big picture. You know, there's, there's a time and a place to crawl into the, to the rabbit trails and get all the details out, but this just isn't it. You know, we, a seminary class or something that really wants to dive into depth and you take months to do this, you could do that, but not in our setting. So we're going to try to look at this concept of chapter 4 today by stepping back into the Old Testament. And the, you remember chapter 3, the reference there of the identifying with the people of the um, Exodus, the Jews of the Exodus, as they wandered through the wilderness. Now those, those 40 years thereabouts that they wandered in the wilderness. And in chapter 3, the author reminds us, don't be like that, right? Don't, don't get that attitude. Don't let your faith sink. Don't get your eyes off God. I mean, a lot of ways to say it, but he's just basically reminding us in chapter 3 how important that is. That same thought comes back in chapter 4 with even a little more detail. So I want to, while we're in the middle of these two chapters, to look at the passages from the Old Testament that help us to see the picture of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to remind his readers of. So again, as Gentiles, you know, I still think we're, we're a little bit behind the curve on some of our understanding of the Old Testament. And the importance of these passages um, sometimes is lost. And, you know, there's nobody to blame for that. It's just kind of a reality of where we are in life and where we are in the culture and the time in which we live. So it does us good to step back in and remind ourselves of these passages. So we're going to start in Numbers 14. Again, passages will be up here to look at. So let's remember Numbers. The book of Numbers 
um, is the travel log of those, of those wilderness years. It does not incorporate all of the wilderness years. It tells us a lot about the beginning of the trip and a lot about the end of the trip. But there's a lot of, a lot of years in the middle that just aren't recorded. And I think you could probably write a, a book as thick as the Bible to record all of it, right? But God gave us what we needed to know in the, in the book of Numbers. And in chapter 14, we'll get four verses here, two on each slide. The first, the first uh, part of chapter 14 follows chapter 13. No surprise there, right? Chapter 13 is where God called Moses and said, select one man of each tribe and send them into the promised land. Now, geographically, they're in a place called Kadesh Barnea. And that's kind of in the middle. They're almost at the halfway or maybe a little more than the halfway journey on the way to the promised land. And God has them stop at this place and says to Moses, select 12 men. Here's who you're, to, uh, here's the names are listed there in chapter 13. Select these men and have them go into the promised land. And they go into the promised land and they stay 40 days. And they come back and they give their report, right? Most of us know this, the, how, the outcome of this. These 12 men, 10 come back with a negative report. Not only is the glass half empty, it's dirty and broken and cracked. I mean, they just don't have anything good to say about this experience of the promised land and how, the, how, the, how things were going to look for them. Two men, Joshua and Caleb, will step up and say, no, this is not the way to view this. As, you know, again, I'll paraphrase. You can go in chapter 13 and read this, and Moses joins in with the argument to say to the people, God has led us this far. Didn't, how long? You know, it wasn't long ago we saw God do great miracles. He delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh and his army. He brought about the plagues that allowed us to go free, the Passover. That same God will lead us into the promised land and will pr provide for us there. But the people get very short-sighted. And then we read the results in chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. They were so disheartened by the word that came back from the spies. These are walled cities. These are big armies. How can we ever be, uh, begin to think that we can overtake this land to be ours? Verse 2, and all, the, and all the children of Israel murmured, there's that great King James word again, Against Moses and against Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother who serves as the high priest at this time, and the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. It would have been so much better just to have drowned in the Red Sea. Or would God that we had died in this wilderness. Maybe it would have been better if we had died last week. But God is now sending us into this. All we're doing is marching to our death, right? That's their attitude. The passage continues in verse 3. And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land? Why did God bring us here? Just to fall by the sword? That our wives and our children should be a prey or a victim? Which is probably the way we'd say it today. Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? Is it too late to make a U-turn? I don't know. Check the GPS and let's see, right? I mean, can we turn around? And they said one to another, let us make a captain. We'll select our own representative to lead us back to Egypt, who's with me? 
And the, and the great debate goes on through the rest of the chapter. Moses steps up, and, and basically the people show their intent. And what they have done will be expressed in a, some later verses. Let me pick two more verses out of chapter 14 before we leave this chapter. That's verses 11 and 23. Verse 11, here's God's response. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? All right, it's, it's, a, it's a very important question because, again, Moses is standing before the Lord, and this question is asked. Now, God is not asking this question because he doesn't know. He's asking this question because he wants Moses to be affirmed in the reality of what he's up against. And how long will it be ere they believe me? Read the air there's before. What will it take for them to believe me? And all the signs which I have shown among them. I mean, that's, that is such an obvious question. And you know, if we're not careful sometimes, we find ourselves in this situation. You know, it's easy to point a finger at the Hebrews meandering through the wilderness trying to figure out what God's doing. But the reality of this example, which the author is going to use in chapter 4, is a reality that still applies to us today. Because sometimes we, in our short-sightedness, in, in our frail human experience, will also, to use the word of the verse, provoke God. God, why? What are you doing? How could you let this happen? I mean, we've got all these human perspective questions. And in a brief way, that's exactly what God is saying here of the heart of the people. God says, haven't I been faithful? I mean, you look at this, basically God's argument to tell Moses to tell the people is, haven't I been faithful to you in the past? And that's always an important life lesson, isn't it? God's faithfulness in the past is always an assurance of God's faithfulness moving forward. If only they had said, that is our God. Look what he did. Can these Canaanites stop us when God is for us? You know, they, they just refused to, to meet the reality of how important their faith was in this situation. And in verse 23, God says again, I'm just picking out a couple of verses here to get the sample. Surely they shall not see the land which I swore unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. If you go down and read, basically God says, those who are over the age of 20 will not go into the promised land. The generation of 20 and under will go into the promised land. And of course, they will go into the promised land at age 60 and under because it's still 40 or so years off. And so um, this was God's response to their short-sightedness in their lack of faith. Okay? You get the picture pretty clear there. Just a little bit of look at it. With that image in mind, we look again, as we did in chapter 3, just briefly. Let me pull the passage up from Psalms 95. These are the last verses of Psalms 95. Now, keep the events of numbers in your thinking as you hear these words. Harden not your heart as in the provocation. That word is used again to refer back to the issue of Numbers 14, where the Lord says, they have provoked me. So it's called the provocation. Harden not your hearts, as in those in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. We know exactly what they're referring to here, what David's referring to. 
when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. All through that wilderness journey, God proved himself faithful. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. See, it, it always, Scripture is very true here, isn't it? It always starts in the heart. That complaining and that griping and that grumbling is never verbalized until it's contemplated in our heart. And having done that, then we start to express our, our disagreement with God. And so God said, unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So here what, what we're seeing is an event from Numbers that is still remembered well. And now, in another generation, much later, David the psalmist writes about that as a reference point when God gives him this psalm and basically says, don't do as that generation did. Don't have that attitude. Don't have that short-sightedness. What's he saying? Let your faith drive and motivate you in following the Lord, even though you do not know the answers, right? All of us here who've lived the life of a parent, and certainly as a grandparent, the, the, you know, the imagery fits too. How many times, whether we said it or not, we implied to our children when they ask all these questions, all I'm asking you is, all I'm asking you to do is to know that you're with me, and we're going to go do the right thing. You know, you just can't explain some things to a four- and five-year-old. You just simply have to say to them, hold my hand, and here we go. And that imagery, I think, reflects well what God intended to do in the nation of Israel as they were exiting Egypt and on the way to the Promised Land, and they refused to take his hand. And that imagery dare not leave us because we face the same challenges in life that will cause us to go short-sighted and somehow think God has forgotten us and left us and we're here meandering without his oversight. So those two passages are important for us as a launching pad to get us into Hebrews 4. But notice the last word of verse 11, rest. If you read chapter 4, as we're going to do in just a moment, you're going to find that's a very common word in chapter 4. It is used eight times. So let's define the word rest, and let's, let's see if we can dissect it enough to when we get into seeing it in context, we can understand it a little clearly, a little more clearly. When you read rest eight times in chapter 4, you're really, the reference point is lost. So let's define the word rest. Now to do that, I want to use a simple example, I hope simple. And that is, somewhere in one or more English classes, in your life, you had an English teacher teach that any word is understood only in context, right? So if I were to say to you, it's good to see all of you back tonight, especially for those of you sitting on the back row, where we know that you're probably uh, sitting there maybe with a sore back, right? I mean, you could carry that conversation on and on, right? I used to have this little game I played with, with my daughter particularly because she was more, word, she was more wordy in, in her thinking than my son was. And this game was called, Did You See the Saw That I Saw? Okay? So this little game went like this. I would start the statement, Did you see the saw that I saw? And my daughter's response, we kind of we played this out for a long time. She would say, I don't know. Where did you see the saw that you saw? 
And I would say, well, I saw the saw that I saw over by the seesaw. Right? You see where that goes? We would just play word games with that and go on and on and just laugh silly over it. But do you see how the importance of, can you understand that sentence even though the word see and saw is used multiple times in different ways? It's the same issue, I think, here with the word rest. You've got to see it in context, and we need to define all the possibilities so when you read it, we'll understand what it's applying to. So let's define this in uh, this series of ways. Number one, rest can mean a period of stoppage and inactivity. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, for example, verse 1, it begins by saying something to the effect of, and God completed all that he had created in six days, and on the seventh day he, what? Rested. So don't get an image of God in a recliner taking a nap, right? That's not the intent of the word. It simply means God stopped. Actually, if you read verse 1 and 2, you'll see that phrase in there, God, God ended his work. It's, that's the idea. The word rest there means to end to end what you're doing, a period of stoppage or inactivity, okay? So that, that can be a rest. It can be one way to interpret it. It's a picture of the promised land. And that would be referenced in just what we looked at, Psalms 95. When the Lord says, they would not enter into my rest. You could put the word promised land in there, and it means the same thing. It's also a place of salvation. It can be used that way. Um, my soul has found a resting place. A song, maybe some of you know. Um, we use that in, 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 our, in our verbiage and in our song some to mean a place of salvation. A place of salvation in Christ. It could also mean a present reality of peace and calm. Somebody might say, I'm in a, I just am in a restful place right now. Right? That's all they mean. You know, after all the fury of whatever has happened, I'm, I'm, I'm now in a place where I'm restful. I'm resting in Christ. And we use that phraseology to mean that. And, and it's not a bad thing at all. A present reality. And then, the last one, a promise of a future state. Are we on our way to a place of rest as Christians? You know, it could be a, it could be a picture of heaven uh, I've heard some commentators apply it to a picture of the millennial kingdom here on earth. That that would be a time of rest. Okay, so we can, we can again, divide some details there, but, but it certainly does apply something happening in the future. So a period, a picture, a place, a present, and a promise are all tied up to this. Keep in mind, too, there's also a past, present, and future to the word rest. We can say that there was a rest, that was a place of rest, that God rested, you know, past events. We can talk about a present state of being in rest. And we can talk about a future state of rest that the Lord has provided for us. So let's keep those in mind, and we'll try to not necessarily identify each one. I, think it, I don't think it'd be terribly hard to do, but at least get, maybe we will. Look at each one of these and see how they're played in the Scripture, right? So with all that being said, it's kind of an introduction. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 of Hebrews. And let's, uh, let's begin to, to put the, the puzzle together, this chapter together. Verses 1 through 11 is the biggest piece of this. And this is where we're going to see the word rest used quite frequently, even beginning in verse 1. So again, the imagery of chapter 3 and 4 references back to Psalms 95. And the author here is giving us some insights on that. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest... Any of you should seem to come short of it. 
that one verse just in itself just calls you to stop and say, I'm not sure really what that means. Okay, so let's, let's look and let's see how it plays out. I know some of you may be reading from other translations. Let us therefore fear, let us have, let us have, um, let's just have an appreciation of the fact that we can fall short. God has a rest for us that he intends for us to experience in our salvation in Christ. But we have to be diligent to get to that place because we don't want to fall short of it, to use the phrase here. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us, what is that promise that's been left us? A place of entering into his rest. That place of salvation that leads to a place of promise. The Lord has left us a promise that he will provide for us a rest, a place of calm, a place of assurance. And if we're not careful, you might, you might come up short. The illustration that probably best demonstrates what he's talking about here is the illustration of the children of Israel going through the wilderness. A generation stood and watched God do tremendous miracles to deliver them and then got into the wilderness, and all of a sudden, they threw their faith away, didn't they? And having thrown their faith away, as it were, their faith in God, they didn't lose their salvation. Salvation is always by grace. But they did not get to the place where God intended them to be, and by so doing, they found themselves not just wandering through the wilderness, but dying in the wilderness, the best they could say was, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, enjoy what God has provided. I'll never get there. And that's the illustration I think it best shows to us what chapter uh, 4, verse 1 intends for us to know. And that is, God has provided a place of rest for us, an intended place of security and assurance but if we are so short-sighted, we cast aside our own faith and say, well, I'll get there myself. I'll do it. And again, we're saved. This is, this is written to believers. Let us. It's written to believers. But if we're not careful as a believer, we can come up short-handed. We just, we don't know what it's like to get to that place. How do we diligently get to that place? I think it's, 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 it's a multitude of all the the recipe of the Christian disciplines. We pray, we read God's word, we, uh, we, uh, we attend church. We're faithful to assemble ourselves together. We're encouraging one another. That's why Hebrews chapter 10, is that, that verse is so important. We do those things, right? All the time, what are we doing? We're growing and maturing in our faith. We're engaging the scripture daily. We're praying daily. It's time to be at church. We're at church. We're encouraging one another. We're involved in a fellowship. We're involved in the hands-on ministry. And by so doing, we're finding ourselves growing in our faith so that we can appreciate the place of rest that God has provided for us. Verse 2 takes us down the, the takes that thinking. So as first one makes sense, if you get that under your belt, then you'll say, well, God's provided me and my salvation a place of rest that comes with maturing in the faith. How many people do you know, you don't, you know, think of it yourself, think of names yourself, who, who, who claim assurance in their salvation? 
but it seems like their life is always in turmoil. They're still living in this, this crazy whirlwind of life, but they just aren't there. And then you find out a little bit about their Christian faith, or maybe you already know it. You know, they, they don't attend church. They're not involved in a Bible study. They don't pray unless things are really bad, then they'll pray, right? There's just a correlation and an association that says, if this is the faith you claim, then exercise that faith. Otherwise, you'll just come up short. The expression used in verse 1. And the, the obvious example is the wilderness travels. Those who started out well, and I'm sure they were singing God's praises as they walked away from the Red Sea. But boy, it just didn't take them long to lose sight of that, right? Verse 2, for unto us, and I'll move a lot faster, I promise. For unto us was the gospel preached, unto us, unto all of us, as well as unto them, those who are wavering in their faith. But the word preached did not profit them. You know one reason why the word preached did not profit them? They weren't there to hear it. Right? They, they just weren't there to hear it. Secondly, they were there, but they didn't hear. They had, as Jesus said, the phrase he uses from the Sermon on the Mount, they had ears but did not hear. They just missed it. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Their faith wasn't even there. Church was just an event, an activity. Being a Christian is just a title and a label. They have no intent to grow in their faith. For we, verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. There's that place of security and safety. That place of calm assurance that the Lord provides for us. For we which have believed, there's our faith in action, we're able to enter into this place of rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if, uh, if they shall enter into my rest, although the, works, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The reference in verse 3 is back to Psalm 95 and Numbers 14. God said, in my wrath and my dissatisfaction with you, you never got to receive my full blessing. Why? Because their faith was limited. Verse 4, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. Remember our first definition of rest? It references stoppage or conclusion as demonstrated in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, that God rested. Here the author even takes us back to that passage. There's a place, the scripture says, on the seventh day on this wise where the scripture says, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. You need an example of how important it is to find this place of rest. Do you, do you realize God rested? He stopped. He ceased. Now, we have very limited capacity to fully understand that. But God didn't stop or cease because he was tired or exhausted. He just stopped. And what does that give to us? An example. It's the Sabbath day. The Hebrew word there in, in Genesis and, and referenced here through Greek is the word sabbat. It's what the Jews call Saturday, the Sabbath. It's the root word of it. It's that place of stoppage. Even God rested. Don't you want to pursue the rest that is provided through God? And in this place again, the same place of the passage, if they shall enter into my rest. This is a reference now to God's rest. It's, it's, it's affirming what God has said is a promise. 
that there's a correlation between your Christian growth, your spiritual growth, your faith growth, and the rest that you will find in God. You know, God's rest will find places, will, will provide for you in places that nothing else can provide. God's rest will be with you in church. God's rest will be with you at home. God's rest will be with you in a hospital room. God's rest will be with you at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're up all by yourself. God's rest is a place to be when we see it used and exercised as something we pursue, something we grow as our faith grows, we grow into. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. The reference there again is back to Exodus. Some entered into that rest. But you know what? They had to go through that same 40 years too. Those 20-year-olds who entered Canaan land as a 60-year-old still had to go through the 40 years. They had challenges and difficulties. Pursuing God's rest does not guarantee you pursuing a, a path of peace always. But again, God's presence gives us that assurance of his rest and his capacity to do and be for us what we cannot achieve by ourselves. And so in the process, all of this is to give us an imagery of how important this rest is, and let's pursue it, right? Let's not let our unbelief, as verse 6 says, get in the way. So here's verse 7. Again, he limited a certain day, or he identified a certain day, saying in David. David who? David the psalmist in Psalm 95. Saying in David, today, after so long a time as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Don't, don't, don't harden your hearts. Right? Go back to Psalm 95, 8. Do not harden your hearts. That's exactly what he's echoing here. So he is tying together as the passages we looked at. Numbers 14, Psalms 95, and see the lesson, learn the lesson. And don't harden your hearts. What does hardening your heart do? It limits your faith. It makes you short-sighted. It takes your hand by your own will out of God's hand. You know, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you know, we sometimes build our own, paint ourselves in the corner, don't we? And so the emphasis here is pursue that rest. Understand how important that rest is and how important it is to see that it's tied to your faith. Verse 8. For if Joshua, okay, who succeeded Moses, Joshua, if Joshua, and he's the one who led them into the promised land, uh, Joshua chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? It wasn't Joshua. It doesn't matter who your leader is. Moses could not have done this for you. Joshua could not have done this for you. You can only depend upon God. And your faith is, has to be built there and grow there. And look at verse 9. This verse gets taken out of context a lot, and I don't think it necessarily diminishes. I bet you've seen that on a, on a postcard somewhere, on a get well card. It's a great verse. It's a great, you know, make a T-shirt and a bumper sticker out of it. It's great. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. But that rest doesn't come instantaneously. 
The rest comes when we see our faith grow, when we are engaging our faith, and we are purposeful about our faith. Those things give us an opportunity then to see how that rest is applied to the people of God. And how is that done? Same way it's always done. By grace, through faith in Christ. And then, that's justification, we're saved. And then sanctification kicks in. Sanctification says grow in your faith. Grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Study to show yourself approved unto God in his word. A workman that needeth not be ashamed. Pray always. Rejoice. I mean, there's so many things that are part of the Christian life that we need to be diligent in our doing. And having done those things, there remains a rest that is ours to achieve. Let's don't come up short. That's why verse 1 says, don't come up short. There's no reason to. You can, you can engage your faith in such a way that God will bless it and, and bless you in the process. Verse 10, for he that is entered into his rest, whose rest? God's rest. He also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. You've just reached that place and you say, God, it's up to you. You lead, you guide, you instruct, you grow me. It's up to you. But I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to see you do it through me and in my life. So what do we do in verse 11? There's, there's almost a, a contradiction of phrases in verse 10 and 11. It's, not, it's worth mentioning. So listen, you see it in verse 10? You have ceased from his own works. And then verse 11 begins with, let us labor therefore. What's the scripture telling me to do? Stop working or work. There's a connection between the two that is demonstrated in the reality that there's a place to understand both concepts. Our, our working in our own works implies we're working in our own way. Right? I mean, I know there's enough experience in this room to know that sometime or another we got ahead of God. You know what we do in life sometimes? We get to a place and go, God, come on, I'm ready. We run ahead of God. You know what you're doing there? You're laboring in your own work. You've got your priorities. You've got a plan. You're just wanting God to come along for the ride. You know, the worst bumper, one of the worst bumpers, there's a lot of terrible bumper stickers. One of the worst ones is God is my co-pilot. Somebody came up with a better one that says, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change seats. And that's very true. Sometimes we want God to be our co-pilot. By default, that means I'm the pilot. And that's exactly what verse 10 is saying. Cease from doing it your own way. Can I put the interpretation in the parentheses there the way I would say it? Cease from doing it your own way, you hard-headed fool. <laughs> okay? Because that's who we are, aren't we? I've got it figured out. How many times do you have to beat your head against a wall to realize you're not getting through that wall? So what do we do? Again, don't read 10 and 11 as contradictions. They are complementary. Quit doing your own work. Cease from your own works, doing it your own way. In your own time, by the way. Instead, verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That example from the Exodus. How do we labor, therefore? The, the word labor there means engaging. It's the idea of putting your hands to the task. It's taking your faith and saying, this faith really is authentic to me. 
It's not just a label I wear. It's not just a title I carry. It's authentic to me. It impacts, therefore, everything I do because it permeates all that I am. And my intent is to pursue God. The Apostle Paul would say, writing to Christians, follow me even as I have followed Christ. Ephesians frequently says we should walk in our faith. You know? And I'm afraid many Christians, Lord bless them, and hopefully they grow up out of this, they go, okay, I'm saved, now what? What are you going to do for me now? Who's going to come visit me now? Who's going to come pray with me now? You see what, you see what that, that boy, that is so short-sighted. The laboring concept is engaging your faith, letting your faith find feet and hands. Let your faith find a place where you can engage it and see it grow and mature as God would desire. Those first 11 verses are, are very important, and we can spend a lot more time on them, but the reality of the glorious rest, that's what it emphasizes to us. And getting to that rest doesn't happen by accident doesn't happen by circumstance. It happens because we set our sights on pursuing after God. And that place of rest can be with us no matter what the circumstances of life throws at us. So 1 through 11. 12 and 13, the reality now of God's word. This was a verse I used a few weeks back. Excuse me, as we talked about bibliocentricity. You thought, you thought I forgot that word, didn't you? For the word of God is quick, alive, right, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow to the, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word, is, is it an odd place to talk about God's word? No, because the, all of chapter 3 and everything through chapter 4 up to this point have been references back to God's word. We live in a culture today that... that diminishes God's word. And sad to say, even some, some who name the name Christ who diminish God's word. And their common excuses are, well, just because it's in the Bible, or yeah, but that's just in the Bible, right? We need to be reminded that when these examples are brought out to us in God's word, that God's word has a power to reach into our heart, into our soul, into show us our shortcomings and show us the way in which we should go. It is alive. It is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword or weapon that's able to reach into the heart, into our mind, and to help us to draw out those things that are otherwise going to hinder us in our faith walk. And then, and then uh, neither, is there, neither is there any creature, verse 13, that is not manifest in his sight, uh, the word there obvious means, or the word manifest there means obvious. Anything you look at, there's nothing. And don't take the word creature to mean God's concerned about the spiritual life of a squirrel, right? It means a created, a created one. We're created through God's plan that brings us into existence, but we're also created new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. It's the same word used there. So you could, you could easily put yourself in verse 13. 
neither is there anything Harley that is not manifest in God's sight. He knows. And he knows what he's doing and how he's working and what he's wanting to do in our lives. He knows. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him to whom we have to do, with, with whom we have to do. That's God. There's nothing hidden to him. And so should we doubt? Should we question? Should we ponder if he really does care and love us? Not at all. So that then turns our attention to the one who is the great creator. The phrase that's going to be used here is the great high priest in verse 14 and 15 and 16. Now, we'll do, let's, let's look at this quickly because I want to really kind of start here next week because 14, 15, 16 are really tied to chapter 5. Again, the chapter break here is, is, uh, uh, is a bit of a false division. But let's read it since we're here, and we'll come back as we'll start next week. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, there's that word, hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a great, I love that verse as a great prayer verse. Um, what do we do with the needs of our lives and the prayers that we have for ourselves, for our church, for our children, for our family, for our work, for our friends? I mean, the list goes on and on, right? What do we do with that? Is this too many prayer? God, is this too many prayer requests? Right? What a, what a silly thought to have, but to illustrate the point. No, we can come boldly, not pridefully, and not boastfully, we come boldly into the throne of grace. Why? Because God is our Father. In coming into that throne of grace, we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in time of need. I'll speak more on all those points next week. So next week, we're going to look at the last, we're going to step back at verse 14, and we'll, just, we'll make a run and start in chapter 5, uh, where it starts talking about the priest. And we'll, we'll revisit the concept of the high priest and uh, add a little more detail. It's already been mentioned once. Well, this is one place we can spend some detail next week. Well, as I've said, every week we're not just looking at Jesus, who is our great high priest, and chapter 4 talks about in chapter 5 next week. We're not just looking at the rest that is provided in God through Christ. We're also looking at why the Christ of the Bible is so much greater than the, the Jesus Christ of, of the cults. And the world religions, we're going, to, we're going to cover a lot of territory through this. And we've done, we've looked at several already. And I wanted tonight to introduce us to the Jesus of the Seventh-day Adventist. Um, again, my intention is not to go through all the details of each, each of these groups. The Seventh-day Adventist grew out of the Advent movement in the middle 1800s. They are an offshoot of the work that was done of the teaching, rather, that was done in the middle 1800s to the end of the 1800s about the soon coming of Jesus. And remember, there was a, uh, there was a teacher of the day who became sort of popular for his teachings that he had interpreted from the Scripture the coming of Christ was going to be in the 1840s. Again, this guy's name is William Miller. Again, no relation. Uh, William Miller was a, was a, at the time, a Baptist lay preacher. He got into the Bible and he came up with this whole scheme 
and chart of when Christ was coming back. He had all these interpretations and calculations. And he came up with a, a scheme that said Jesus will return between spring of 1843 to spring of 1844, I believe it was. It's listed on this chart. We'll see it in detail. And, of course, that didn't happen. So people stepped back and said, okay, what's, you know, where'd we miss it? And people got back into the playing that game of can we determine Jesus will come again. What a foolish game that is, too. People still try to play that game. And as a result, there was this group that grew out of the Adventist movement who put faith in Christ and the works of the law together. That salvation means you believe in Christ, but then you have to follow the commandments, particularly the Ten Commandments. And what does one of the Ten Commandments say? Worship on the Sabbath or the seventh day. So the Seventh-day Adventists believe that worshiping on Saturday is part of fulfilling the law of God to maintain their salvation. And again, there's lots of tentacles of this. We don't have time to go into it. Let's just talk about the Jesus that they, that they affirm or that they teach. They would say Christ is eternal. By the way, I have heard Seventh-day Adventist preachers who the first 30 or 40 minutes of their sermon could have been preached in this Baptist church and many others. It's always the last 10 or 15 minutes that they're going to tag in this you got to follow the law stuff. They believe Christ in the Old Testament was Michael the archangel. And again, I hope it throws up a flag, right? Um, here's our 1844 date. I think I said spring earlier. October 1844. There was a, actually a window of time there. But anyway, that date typically hangs around them. Jesus entered into a second and last phase of his atoning work. So they, were, they, were, they took the path of the advent of Jesus coming to earth, and they said, no, Jesus did something. He just didn't come to earth. They basically said he moved from one part of heaven to another part of heaven to complete his work. He's in now what they call the sanctuary of heaven, a sanctuary of heaven where Jesus carries out his mediatorial work. In other words, Jesus got some more stuff to do. And he's working through the books. And he's seeing who's put faith, but also who's kept the law. Ellen G. White is the most prolific voice of the Seventh-day Adventist. You can tell by the their address there. Um, she lived from 1827 to 1915. And she was a prolific writer. Uh, she claimed over 2,000 visions that God gave her about what his church should be like and what they should teach. 2,000 visions and dreams. She wrote some 5,000 articles and some 400 books. And the Seventh-day Adventists are still a group that, you know, you keep at arm's length. Um, they certainly are a people that have a, a, a teaching and a theology that has a lot of challenges with biblical theology because they give so much credit to those dreams and visions that Ellen G. White had. They will affirm many of those things over even what the Bible says. So that's where you always get the problem is. The thing about those books, is, and they're still being published today, is that they, uh, the titles of the books, the titles of the chapters, all sound familiar to us. 
Matter of fact, many years ago, a gentleman stopped me in the church here. He doesn't attend here now because they, they moved somewhere else many years ago. But a gentleman in the church stopped me and said, hey, I found this book. And I'm really intrigued. I like what I was And he handed it to me and said, what do you know about it? And I turned it over and said, authored by E.G. White. And I knew, I said, you know, that's Seventh-day Adventist. They are just going to find a way to make the, the verbiage. They've even come out with their own Bible. Um, that, that twists some of those words to make their point in their case, much like the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible. So don't let the Seventh-day Adventist, they sound good at surface, but you don't have to dig too far down to find, indeed, their Jesus is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. So next week we'll go to chapter 5. Well, let's close there as we do. Remind you, we're praying for the Appel family, and we have our box out there I saw, so thank you for your giving to them. They're serving in South Asia, and uh, they're uh, very faithful and very diligent in their work, and uh, uh, glad to hear that um, things are going well there. I, uh, I'll try to keep you up to date as I get emails from them too, and, uh, and appreciate your prayers for them. Well, Lord bless as we finish. Conclude a great day, right? And I uh, look forward to the week ahead and the month ahead and all the wonderful things that we look forward to sharing as a church. And uh, uh, don't, don't forget all those announcements. Pick up a weekly connect. Well, let's pray and we'll dismiss there. Father, thank you for our time today to be at church, to worship and praise you through music and words, through the, through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of our pastor's testimony. Indeed, uh, we want our hearts and our church uh, to praise you before all men. And tonight we come with that thought in mind. We pray that you'll dismiss us with your blessings. Help these great truths, Father, to sink in. Help us to be, to be diligent, to engage our faith so that it grows and that we can, we can understand the reality of the rest that you have promised and provided. And I pray that we'll not have a hard heart. We'll not murmur in those times of challenge and difficulty. That we'll set our sights on you, knowing that you will lead us and guide us as you see fit. Pray that you'll give us safety as we go into the uh, week and indeed further into the month. Uh, bless those needs or prayer requests uh, on our church prayer list and on our hearts this evening. We have those and we lift them up with confidence. Uh, we do claim the verse of uh, chapter 4, verse 16, that we can come boldly into your presence and that we can seek mercy and grace to help in time of need because it is abundant from you. And I pray that you'll be honored through all we do as we dismiss. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you do have a great week. I love it.